One thing I love about living in this part of the country is having four distinct seasons. You have the fall and you have the winter. You have the spring and summer. And if there's some aspect about a certain season that you don't like, you can just uh, wait a little while and things will change, right? Well, I don't know about you, but one thing I don't look forward to as summer approaches is the summer heat. I like the summer okay. I just don't care for 100 plus degree temperatures for consecutive days unless I'm by the lake or uh, by the pool. How about you? Yeah. That's why I love the fall. That's one of my favorite times of year. I, I love it when it first starts to get cool and when I finish working in the yard and have hardly broken a sweat. It's always a great thing. But one thing that I like about the summer months that I don't like about the late fall and winter months is in the summertime you have what? More hours of daylight. That's right. In the fall you don't have that. I love it when I get finished with the work day around five and I still have about two and a half to three hours left of daylight to either work in the yard or go outside and play with the play with the kids. That's always a, a, a great thing. You know, during the, the fall and winter months uh, when it starts getting dark earlier, you don't have a lot of time for those sort of outdoor activities, right? And uh, also, I, I feel more energized when it stays light longer. Y'all, are y'all with me on this? When it, when it gets dark around 4.45, 5, I just find myself getting more tired than normal. And it's also just sort of a gloomy time of year, isn't it? It's kind of dark and gray and, and cold and things are, are dead. You know, I, I couldn't imagine living in those uh, places where it stays dark for 24 hours a day for extended periods of time. Could you? I mean, could you imagine that? That'd be kind of depressing, wouldn't it? Just to be in constant darkness day after day. That'd be pretty depressing. Well, we're going to talk about darkness and light today, but not in a literal sense. We're going to talk about it in a figurative and spiritual way. This idea of spiritual darkness and spiritual light is one of the major themes of the Bible, especially if you're reading one of the books that John has written. As you read through his gospel and his epistle in 1 John, you find that John loves to use this imagery of darkness and light. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 9. John 9. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of John this morning entitled Knowing Jesus from John. And this morning, we're going to be talking about knowing Jesus as the light of the world. Now, the term light is used in John's gospel 24 times. And twice, Jesus says of himself, he says, I am the light of the world. At the very beginning of John chapter 9, you see one of the two places where this happens. Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And for most of this chapter, we read and we learn from John how we can know Jesus in this way. 
And there are two keys we find here in this chapter to knowing Jesus as the light of the world. The first key is this, to understand and know Jesus as the light of the world, first we must understand that the world is dark. The world is dark. To know Jesus as the light of the world, we must first understand that we live in a dark world, a broken and fallen world, a world that's been ruined and wrecked by sin. Look at John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man saw his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus and his disciples are walking along here. And they pass by a man who has been blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus a theological question. They asked, hey Jesus, who is responsible for this man's blindness? Was it his sin or his parents' sin that brought about this result? Now I want you to watch this. I want you to notice here that behind this question is a belief. They, along with many others in that day held to the belief that if something bad happened in a person's life then that person or a close friend or family member must be to blame they believed that suffering was a direct result of a particular wrong that had been committed by an individual this was a very common belief in Jesus's day but this theology is nothing new is it No, remember, this was the theology of Job's friends. You remember that? Remember the story? Job loses his livelihood, his health, and even members of his own family. And his friends come along and say, Man, Job, you've obviously messed up majorly. That's the only explanation we can come up with for why you are suffering as you are. You must have ticked God off. You need to find out what you've done wrong and repent. Great friends, right? It's just what I would want to hear right after this happened to me. And that is the same theology that is driving the disciples' belief here. They come across this man who was born blind and they turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, whose sin caused this man to be born blind? And believers, let's be honest. Though many of us know this story, and we know the disciples were off in their thinking here, don't many of us tend to have a similar theology when it comes to life's trials? Don't we? Though we may not admit it, when something bad happens in our lives, we at times will question God. At times we will ask, God, did I do something wrong here? Is there something that I've done that's causing this? Or at times, we'll think, man, I've got to make up for my hours lost in quiet time. I've got to to catch up on those. I'm backed up in my payments to the church. Maybe if I do that, these problems will go away. And at times, folks, we can be like Job's friends, can't we? 
When friends come to us and say, man, I'm going through it, I'm having a tough time, we often respond with, well, have you had your quiet time lately? As if having your quiet time, even though it's a great thing to have, will keep you trouble free. So you see, at times we reason in the exact same way. But notice what Jesus says here. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, Jesus informs his disciples here that there's not always this cause and effect relationship when it comes to suffering. When something goes wrong in your life, it's not always the case that you can pinpoint an exact cause and say, oh, here's the particular sin that caused this or that. It doesn't work like that. At times, we experience horrible things, get this, not because of one particular sin, but because we live in a fallen world. It's true. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a fallen world where bad things happen to decent people. You know, people always say that's the Achilles heel of Christianity. The fact that bad things happen to decent people, they say that's a difficult question for them to answer. Well, my response is, no, it's not. No, it's not. You want to know why bad things happen to decent people? The fall. The world is fallen. And people don't like to think about that, even though they know deep down it's true. That's why books, the, the, the most sold books in any bookstore are self-help books. People know deep down there's something not right with us. And we learned that this week, didn't we? On the news? That we live in a fallen world? So the next time life takes a bad turn from you, and guess what it will, or maybe it already has. Maybe you're going through it right now. Next time this happens, or if this is happening, don't beat yourself over, uh, up over it and don't allow others to. Now, I'm not saying you should never examine yourself to see what needs improving in your life. It's not like good things can't come from that, but I'm saying don't beat yourself up and always assume that the trials that you face in life come because of a certain particular sins in your life and that the problems that you're having can be avoided by excellent behavior. Sometimes we experience pain and suffering because we live in a fallen world. That's it. Times it's that simple. Yet notice what Jesus says here in verse 3. He indicates that God has allowed this blindness to happen so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, many don't like that verse either. They don't like to think that God allows blindness, yet that's what Jesus says here. Now, we're to blame for the state of things in our world, aren't we? God created a perfect world, flawless world, and we messed up by sinning against him. But Jesus is making the point here that at times God allows things like blindness and sickness to happen so that in his timing he can undo these things and reveal his plan. And God has a plan, doesn't he, for his world. He has a big plan that he has revealed to us in his word and is revealing to us here in this passage. Listen, though we live in a world where the innocent suffer and the righteous 
experience pain and sadness, sickness and death. God is committed to and is right now at work at this very moment redeeming and restoring this broken world. He is undoing right now all that's been ruined and wrecked by sin and one day will complete this work. It's coming a day for us believers when pain and sickness, sorrow and death will be history. It'll be in our rear view. But right now, at this moment, God's redemptive work is not yet complete, is it? Which is why at this time we can relate to the blind man in this story, can't we? Now, though we're not blind, many of us, all of us in here are not. We don't suffer from this particular problem. We suffer from all kinds and types of ailments, don't we? Of differing degrees. I know I do. I know many of you do as I look at the prayer list and think about the prayer list. But you know what I've discovered? At times, when I'm in pain or when I'm suffering from this condition or that, for one reason or another, I'm reminded of the fact that I live in a fallen world. And you know what? You may think it's strange of me to say, but it's good for me to be reminded of this. And believers, it's good for you to be reminded of it as well. You know why? Because we live in a modern world with modern medicine, and we expect to be healthy, don't we? We really do. That's an expectation of ours. This past winter, I know, was rough for many of you. I know many of you are out of work for a day or a few days or maybe even a week or more with the cold and flu. And I don't know about you, but when I get sick, I expect to go to CVS or Walmart pharmacy and get the drug I need and take it and feel better in a few days. That's my mindset. I expect to be healthy. When I get sick, it's, it's abnormal for me. I view that as being abnormal. It's not right. It shouldn't happen. I expect to be healthy. But, but here's the reality, folks. Whether you like it or not, we live in a world that's marked with sickness. We live in a world that's marked by pain, marked by suffering. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a fallen and broken world. And the reality is this, that we should be more shocked when we're healthy than when we're sick. It's true. It's a tough perspective, but it's true. Our mentality should be, wow, we live in a Genesis 3 world and we feel good. Can you believe it? Praise the Lord. When we're sick, we should be saying, of course we are. You know? Because this is the type of world we're living in. But we often don't reason in this way today because we live in a modern world with modern medicine. We're two to three miles away from a pharmacy where we can have access to all kinds and types of medicines. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against modern medicine. I love modern medicine. I'm not saying we should do away with it. But I am saying that we should have a better perspective on the world, a more biblical perspective on the world around us. Now, in saying that, let me say this. Though it's key to have a biblical worldview and see the world for what it truly is, a fallen and broken world, it's essential that you don't stay there, okay? Listen, though God wants us to live with this truth in mind, He doesn't 
want this truth to just lead you to become negative and pessimistic about the world in which you live. I mean, he, 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 if you spend all your days just thinking about and talking about, man, we live in a messed up world, it's a broken, fallen, disgusting world, pretty soon you're going to become someone no one wants to be around. I guarantee you. Though it's good for you to keep this truth in mind, you can't stay there. You can't just focus on the negative and be fatalistic. That won't help you, nor will it help anyone else spiritually. Now, there's good news that accompanies the bad news. And here's the thing, the good news outweighs the bad, which is good, right? Yeah. Though it's true, we live in a dark, broken, fallen world, a world marked with suffering and sickness and pain there's good news and this leads us into our second point though the world is dark christ is the light he is the light look at what jesus says again in john chapter 9 verse 5 he says as long as i am in the world i am the light of the world having said these things he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So in the middle of this theological conversation about who sinned, that this man was born blind, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he spits on the ground. And he stirs it up, and he, he, he makes mud, and he puts it on this guy's eyes. And he tells this guy, I want you to go and wash at the pool named Siloam, which means scent. And I want you to wash off the mud. So the man goes to the pool, and he washes off the mud. And the text tells us that the man came back seeing. Now think about how incredible this miracle is for a moment. This man has not been able to see a thing his entire life. And then in a moment, he can see all out. Would that not be incredible to witness that? I remember when I first got my eyes checked, seriously had no idea that I had an issue until I got a new pair of glasses. I tell you, when I put those glasses on, it was like I'd never seen before. I remember seeing making out small details in the carpet and seeing textures on the walls that I'd never been able to make out before. And I remember thinking to myself when I put on those glasses, so this is what it's like to truly see. If that was my experience, imagine what this man's experience was. He had been blind his whole life and could now see things clearly. Again, it's an incredible miracle. Now, in reading this miracle, a question is often asked, why is this man healed in this way? Why is he healed in this way? You ever thought about that? Why spit in the dirt and mix it around and make mud and put it on the man's eyes? That just sounds messy and unnecessary, doesn't it? I mean, why didn't Jesus just heal the man by speaking to him? He did that in the past, right? Why didn't he do that here? Well, there are several answers for this, but one answer I really want to highlight and point out because I really believe this is on point. It comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Look at it up on the screen with me. Gen Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living creature. You know what? When God creates Adam, what does he do? He reaches down and he takes the dirt and he forms man from the dust on the ground and then he breathes the very breath of life into him. And think about what Jesus has done here. He takes the dirt and he handles it and he breathes upon it and he spits upon it and he puts it on the man's eyes and he restores this man's vision. And what I believe Jesus is doing here is he's pointing us back to creation. He's saying by performing this miracle in this way, he's saying this is the way things were in the beginning when God created man. In the beginning, there was no blindness. There were no ailments. There was no sickness or sadness of any kind. So when Jesus heals this blind man, he's taking him and them, his disciples, I believe, back to creation. He's pointing back to the garden. And he's also, more importantly, pointing them forward to that future day when he's going to restore and redeem this broken world in which we live. He's saying, this is the way things were before the fall. And he says, this is the way that things are going to be again in the end. Listen, folks. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he is going to make right all the things that we have wronged. When Christ returns, he is going to reverse the curse. He is going to remove the conditions of this fallen world and he's going to make things right once again. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Joy to the World. I love that song. And in this song are these lyrics. It says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Listen, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return. And no more are sorrows and sins going to grow. No more are thorns going to infest the ground because Jesus is coming to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, Jesus is returning. When he does, the consequences of Genesis 3 are going to be undone. This process was initiated by Christ's first coming and will be completed when he returns. And this miracle in John 9, I believe, is pointing us toward this. It's pointing us backward to the beginning, before the fall. And it's pointing us forward to that future day, to the consummation of all things. You know, we all have this deep longing, don't we, for things to be right in our world. Many felt that way this week, didn't they? Have a longing for things to be right. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. All people have longing, this longing for better days, don't we? Whether it's getting back to the way things used to be or a desire for future days when we don't have the problems that we now have. Well, Scripture gives us some great news, believers. God tells us in His Word that better days are coming for us. The future is bright, church, for us. Not only are things going to be like they once were in the beginning before the fall, they're going to be better. Because Christ has come as our Redeemer, and He's returning 
as our conquering king. So these are two keys to knowing Jesus as the light of the world. We have to understand that the world is dark, but we must also remember and rejoice in the fact that Christ is the light. Now let's discuss two responses briefly here that we see in our text. Two responses to Jesus as the light of the world. The first response is rejection. Some reject the light. Look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Imagine that, it's a Sabbath day when Jesus heals him. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He, Jesus, put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Oh boy. These guys are never going to get it, are they? So think about what we have here. We have this man who has been healed and he has brought before the Pharisees and the Pharisees are investigating what has taken place and they, they ask this man how he received his sight and the man says to him, he, Jesus, put mud on my eyes and I washed it off and now I see. And notice the response of the Pharisees in verse 16. They say, this man, Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees were convinced that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And one of the main reasons why is because Jesus did not play by their rules. So they spent all their time trying to find more and more evidence to prove that he was not who he claimed to be. Well, this man has been healed, and he's not giving them anything. They're questioning about this. He's not giving them anything. So they go to this man's parents, hoping that they will disprove his story. They were hoping that this man was a con or a fraud, probably. So they go to his parents, and they bring his parents in. And though the parents affirm, this is our son, and he was born blind, it's obvious they don't want any part of what's going on. They want to be left out of it. Look at verses 19 through 21. And the Pharisees asked them, the parents, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. So they basically just say, Just ask our son. We don't want any involvement in this. So... The parents don't want any part of this, even though they have affirmed this is our son. He was born blind. So the Pharisees are, are not satisfied, obviously, with that. They go back to the blind man. They bring him in again. And look at what they say. They're really putting pressure on him here. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see so they call him back in and they say, hey, you better do what's right before God. You better give glory to God by affirming that Jesus is a sinner. And the man responds with this. He says, to be honest with you, I don't know whether he is or not. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Well, obviously that's not what they want to hear either, is it? So they keep prodding. 
and questioning this man, asking, how did it happen? How did he do it? They're, they're just dumbfounded by this. And, and it's funny, the man sort of sarcastically says, you know, I've already told you guys this. Are you asking me because you want to be one of his disciples? It's kind of funny, isn't it? And they, they get angry at this, don't they? They get very defensive. They say, you may be his disciple, but we aren't. We are disciples of Moses. And they keep going back and forth, and the man tries to convince the Pharisees that Jesus is someone special, and they're not having it, so they cast him out. So here we have the first response to Jesus as the light of the world, rejection. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. They rejected the light without even an honest hearing, right? I mean, they have a miracle before them. But they're not satisfied with that, and they are definitely not turning to the side of Jesus. So they cast this man out, and they reject Jesus' claims without even an honest hearing. And this is not the last time we'll learn a few chapters over that they send him to the cross without an honest hearing as well. So this is the first response. Some reject the light. And we as believers see and experience this kind of rejection today, don't we? And we see this, the Pharisees rejected Jesus without really even considering who he was claiming to be and considering what he came to do. They rejected him without really listening to him. And many do the same thing today, right? Don't they? Today, when people reject Jesus, you ever notice they don't reject him in an unbiased way. They don't. They reject him like the Pharisees did without even really giving him the time of day. For many, the jury is already out against Jesus. There are many who already have their their minds made up. They already have it in their hearts that Jesus did not come from God. He is not the light of the world, and the claims that he made are not true. And that's the first response. Some reject the light. This is really the main point of this chapter, the main point of this passage in chapter. John, in this passage, get this, he is showing how ironic it is that this man who is born, who was born blind, is the one who truly sees, while the Pharisees who have their sight are completely blind. You see that? By the end of this story, we see that this man who was born blind is walking in the light while the Pharisees are in darkness because they have rejected the light of the world. That's the true irony of this story. This chapter is ultimately an indictment against them and against all those who reject the light. That's why the chapter ends the way that it does. Look at it with me, verses 39 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, they're offended here, they're saying, Are are we also blind? You talking about us? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, the problem with the Pharisees was the fact that they did not realize they had a problem. That was one of their main problems. They thought they could see. They thought they had arrived spiritually. They thought they were spiritually healthy even though they saw no need for Jesus. Jesus says, I've come into the world 
And my coming into the world brings judgment on people like you who see no need of me. That's the reason why I've come, because you need me. And the fact that you see no need of me and think you're fine on your own, it's going to bring judgment on you. Jesus says, I've come to bring a solution, the only solution to man's sin, sin problem. I came out in, into the, I've, I've came to, come to call people out of the darkness and into my marvelous light, but I can only help those who see their need of it. And obviously the Pharisees do not. They reject the light, they see no need for the light, and they remain in darkness. Listen, folks. It's true that Jesus came for those who are in darkness. He came for the blind. But he came for those who are knowingly in the darkness. He can only become Lord of those who are knowingly blind. Jesus came for people who are well aware of their spiritual darkness so that he could draw them out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. So the question for many of you here this morning who do not know him is this, do you realize that you're blind? Because scripture says that without Christ you are. Do you realize that you're sick? Because Scripture says that you are without Christ. Do you realize that you're in need? Because Scripture says that you are without Christ. And before you can experience Jesus as the light, you must come to recognize that you're in darkness and in need of His marvelous light. And then when you come to this realization, you must respond like the blind man who receives his sight. Notice how he responds. Notice the second response. The blind man accepts the light. So that's the second response, accept the light. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That is, Jesus heard the Pharisees had cast out the blind man out of the temple. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So we learn here that not only does the blind man receive his sight physically, but he also receives his sight spiritually, doesn't he? By the end of this chapter, the blind man can not only see physically with his eyes, but he can see spiritually with his heart. Notice where we see this in verse 38. We see that he refers to Jesus as Lord, and then he says, Lord, I believe in you, and he worships him. So the blind man gives us a great example, folks of how we are to respond to Jesus as the light of the world. We are first to realize that we're in darkness. We are to understand that we are blind, but then we're to look to Jesus and make Him Lord of our life and worship Him. We're to move, turn from our darkness and move into His marvelous light. That's how we're to receive Him. And I want to leave you with this question this morning. To those of you here this morning who do not know Jesus, to those of you who are here who are not trusting in Him for salvation, I want to ask you once more, what say you this morning? 
What is your response today? Folks, there's only one of two responses that you can have. You either reject Him or you accept Him. And I pray that if you have not, that you would respond like the blind man in John 9 this morning and that you would recognize your blindness and that you would look to Christ and trust in Him and believe in Him so that you too can step out of your own darkness and into His marvelous light. Let's pray.